reason bolsters your soul today. We are privileged to have Dr. Sam Saldivar coming as our speaker today, born in Harlingen, Texas, grew up in Bradenton, Florida in a Christian home, and early at the age of 16 was burdened for full-time ministry and came here to BJU with that plan in mind, looking to go into missions, and he did both a Bachelor of Arts and a Master of Arts in Bible from here. And because of his love for languages and learning, he went on and completed a PhD in Old Testament interpretation with the hope that one day God might use him to start a seminary in a Spanish-speaking country. God redirected his paths, and we're thankful for that. He became a full-time member of our faculty in 2005, met his wife Rebecca here, and they have been blessed with six children. He's a faithful church member at Hampton Park Baptist Church, where he actively participates in teaching the Word through their core Sunday school classes. He teaches a number of courses here um, at one point, focused on Greek, now focuses on teaching both Hebrew 1 and 2. He teaches Bible doctrines and does so through that lens of Old Testament truth. And I know you're going to be blessed as he opens the word to us this morning. Dr. Salvar, you come. Would you give him a warm welcome? I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Psalm 45. beginning with the psalm title. To the choir master, according to Lilies, a maskil of the sons of Korah, a love song. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh, and aloes, and cassia, from ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of offer. Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber, with robes interwoven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king, 
with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 45 celebrates a wedding, but this is not just any normal wedding of the common folk. This is a royal wedding. This is the wedding of a king and his bride. It is unclear whose wedding is celebrated here. Speculations include Solomon, perhaps marrying the daughter of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, or one of his many wives, uh, the daughter of Hiram, king of Tyre. Some speculate that because of the reference to ivory, this was King Ahab marrying Jezebel, but his reign was not quite characterized by righteousness. Or perhaps Joram, the second Solomon, marrying Athaliah. The text is unclear. Uh, my personal opinion is that it's probably a reference to one of Solomon's uh, marriages, but we must hold our conclusions tentatively. In addition to being one of the royal psalms, the psalm is among the messianic psalms. Especially in light of the quotation of verses 6 and 7, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. In Hebrews 1, 8 and 9, applied specifically to Jesus and his deity, his supremacy above all things. The messianic psalms arise out of the historical context of the Davidic dynasty. Basically, God appeared to David and promised that he would always have a ruler sitting on his throne. And David understood that this applied to much more than his son Solomon. He almost passed away without installing Solomon as king. He was looking unto the ultimate, true, eternal king. So we have a royal psalm, a messianic psalm. Spurgeon rightly comments about this psalm. Some see here Solomon and Pharaoh's daughter only. They are short-sighted. Others see both Solomon and Christ. They are cross-eyed. Well-focused spiritualized see here Jesus only. Or if Solomon be present at all, it must be like, like those hazy shadows of passers-by which cross the face of the camera and therefore are dimly traceable upon a photographic landscape. As we work through this psalm, we're going to be taking two looks at it. I do believe this psalm was used historically to commemorate royal weddings. It was read and used in praise, sung at weddings to celebrate the union of a king of Israel with his bride. But as you read the psalm, you can't help but see reference to the king of kings and to his bride, the church. So we will look at this psalm through two lenses as we work through the text, beginning here with the psalm title. Unfortunately, many of our translations leave out the psalm titles. Uh, I say in my classes, we need to make the psalm titles great again. The psalm titles are included as part of the Hebrew canon. And I would argue that we should keep them in our translations as well. Jesus and the apostles cited them as authoritative, and I find no compelling reason to exclude the psalm titles from our scripture. 
The title begins, To the Choir Master According to the Lilies. The reference to the lilies is the Hebrew Shoshanim, which could be a reference to a musical instrument or a musical tune, and it does seem to connect this with uh, the Song of Solomon's uh, the Song of Solomon, and perhaps it referred to one of his weddings. This is a, a masculine of the sons of Korah. I don't know if you remember the, the descendants of Korah. Um, they rose up, the Levite Korah rose up in rebellion against Moses, and the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed almost all of them up. But this is a testament to God's grace that the sons of Korah are still alive and they are privileged with being doorkeepers and worship leaders in the house of God. It is called a maskil, which refers to a skillfully written psalm that is intended to impart wisdom to the hearers and singers. And as we're approaching Valentine's Day, appropriately it is called a love song. And this could be a song about love or a lovely song. I would argue that it is both. It is a lovely song about the greatest love ever. Verse one, my heart overflows with a pleasing theme. The author here is overwhelmed with consideration of this topic. The word overflows is used to describe the, the tons of frogs that overflowed from the Nile River and burst into people's homes or of food bursting out of a granary that's so full that the doors are breaking open. The heart of the psalmist is full. It's bubbling over with this good, excellent theme. He's compelled to speak. He addresses his poem to the king. He is singing for him this masterpiece. He describes his tongue like the tongue of a skilled scribe, the pen of a skilled scribe. He's ready to write skillfully as he declares this incredible scene that's in his heart. Beginning in verses uh, two and following, he addresses the king. He describes the king as the most handsome of the sons of men. So whoever this historical king was, uh, it's as if he looks in the mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? and hyperbolically applied to the historical king, it would have been he. Beauty in the, in the Bible is rarely mentioned. We do have a few characters like Sarah, who's so beautiful that Abraham uh, makes up lies about her being his sister. Rachel, who was so beautiful that Jacob was able to roll away a stone that normally required multiple men to move. That was love at first sight. It's used of Joseph, who was so attractive that Potiphar's wife wanted him. David was described as attractive, and his son uh, Absalom was also very handsome, and he had incredible hair. Uh, unfortunately for him, his hair ended up being his end. And Queen Esther is also described as being beautiful. In this psalm, we have the psalmist describing this king arrayed in his royal attire as uh, more beautiful than all the sons, literally, of Adam. Now, we know that there is no, this is hyperbolic language. There is, beauty is, in a sense, 
in the eye of the beholder, what some people consider beautiful, other people don't. Uh, Ultimately, what we have here is a reference to Jesus. Jesus is the most beautiful, literally, from all the sons of Adam. When he took upon him a human body, there was no external beauty in him that we should behold him. He was not impressive. But his inner beauty drew all kinds of people to him. The psalmist continues, grace is poured upon your lips. This could be a description that his lips were especially impressive, but more likely when he opened his lips, the speech that came out was eloquent. It was gracious speech. Kings would have been uh, in a position of a background to be well-spoken, but this ultimately also applies to Jesus. Grace poured from his lips. Luke 4.22 says that all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. He was the word made flesh who dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And now that he has ascended to the right hand of the Father, the glory that was once his, described in Isaiah chapter 6, is restored. The hymnists say, Fair are the meadows, fairer is still the woodlands, robed in the blooming garb of spring. Jesus is fair. Jesus is pure, who makes the woeful heart to sing. Fair is the sunshine, fair is still the moonlight, and all the twinkling starry hosts. Jesus shines brighter. Jesus shines purer than all the angels heaven can boast. He is the most beautiful among the sons of Adam. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. The blessing that's described here is not because of his beauty he's blessed, but he is blessed with the beauty. Verse 3 describes the king as a warrior. So we see beginning here in verse 3, Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and your majesty, in your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. The king, though beautiful, is also a warrior. In Old Testament times, kings were not merely figureheads who sent their generals into battle. The reason people wanted a king in those days is so that the king could be the warrior, the one who would protect them. So the first king of Israel, King Saul, he is chosen, he is tall, and he uses his physical um, capacity to defeat the enemies of Israel. The section here portrays the king as a warrior. He is a mighty hero in battle. That word in the Hebrew is Gabor, from which we get the name Gabriel. It is used to describe David's mighty men, the military elite. The king is depicted here as ready for battle. His sword is strapped to his thigh. He is full of majesty and splendor, mounted on a battle horse. 
He's instructed to ride prosperously. But in this battle, there's kind of a shift here. For this king, might doesn't make right. It is actually his righteousness that supports his omnipotence, his might. He's instructed to ride prosperously for the sake of truth and humility and justice. His might is used for the sake, for the benefit, for the well-being, for the protection of the people, not for personal greed or pride. His skill and preparation is such that nations fall at his feet. As a matter of fact, the wording in the, in the original here is, your arrows are sharp, and then it's interrupted by, nations fall under you, and then it says, in the heart of the king's enemies. In other words, the psalmist is so excited with the victory that this king wins that he just jumps right to uh, the nations fall under your feet. Jesus is the ultimate heroic warrior. He comes, he came the first time on a donkey, an animal of peace. When he comes, he's described as coming again on a battle horse. And he will succeed. And I would argue he is succeeding. He is seated at the right hand of the Father until all his enemies are subjected under his feet. Revelation 19 anticipates that day. It says, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is the ultimate heroic warrior. Verses uh, six through nine, we see the glory of this king as a ruler. Verse six, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of righteousness. You have loved up righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. The king is addressed as Elohim, and this would be one of those places where if it does apply to a historical king at all, it is only in a representative uh, typological way. There is no human at this point in human history that could ever be called God. When we get to the book of Hebrews, it argues that this passage ultimately was referring to Jesus. So your throne, Jesus, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. Jesus loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Jesus was anointed by his Father, so there are hints here of the Trinity. Uh, with the oil of gladness. He is the everlasting God. He does reign in righteousness. He does hate evil and love righteousness. But his reign is not a miserable one. 
He is anointed with the oil of gladness. His rule is one that brings happiness and joy to the subjects. His yoke is easy, his burden is light, and all who are weary and heavy laden come and find their rest and joy and satisfaction in him. And now we move here to a description of his robes. Verse 8, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. From ivory palaces, stringed instruments make you glad. Uh, to sum this up, he smells good. <laughs> all right, myrrh, uh, aloe, cassia are used in making perfumes. Uh, myrrh was used as part of the anointing oil that was used to be applied on the tabernacle instruments and on the priests themselves. I don't think it's accidental that when Jesus was born, one of the gifts brought to him was myrrh. Myrrh was brought for the embalming of his body at his death. Uh, The idea here is not necessarily a physical one, but wherever Jesus went, he left the fragrance of God He left grace and love and justice and humility. It's kind of like when you pass by someone on the sidewalk who's wearing some perfume or cologne, and it doesn't hit you until a few feet after you've passed him. Either good or bad, it might be too much, it might be a good smell, but wherever Jesus went, he left the aroma of the Father. Jesus left ivory palaces, he left the riches of heaven, He became poor. He who was rich became poor for our sake. He came to redeem his bride. Continuing here, we see in verse 9, Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of offer. So in that historical wedding, the nobility, the, the greatest of men would come to celebrate the wedding of a king and his, his bride. And as applied to Jesus, Jesus historically has drawn the greatest of men to his cause. Hebrews tells us that many of these believers whom Jesus has saved, the world is not worthy to know about them. In the second half of the psalm, we have uh, attention drawn to the bride. If Jesus is the king, then the church is his bride. We are not spiritualizing when we read the text this way. Ephesians 5 tells us that marriage in some way mysteriously is instructive with regard to Christ's relationship to the church. The bride is instructed here, hear, O daughter, consider, incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he's your Lord, bow down to him. The people of Tyre will seek uh, your favor with gifts, the richest of people. So the bride here is uh, encouraged to forget about where she comes from, forget about her father's house, forget her home and what she's familiar with, and give herself fully to her husband. uh, Genesis 2, for this cause shall a man and woman leave or forsake his father and mother and be joined to his wife. So this is God's will for most people that they marry, and as we come to Christ, we are to forget our past life. What Jesus tells us is that if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, 
He cannot be my disciple, but what we give up is nothing in comparison to what we gain. We are placed before the great king and surrounded by uh, honor, by glory, by wealth, by riches. Look at the description of the bride in, in verses 13 and following. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold and many colored robes she is led to the king. Of course, this speaks of the church's union with Christ. Ephesians 2 tells us that God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, uh, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ. The way God wants you to view yourself today, positionally, is you are a royal bride, all decked out in gold, and you are at Jesus' right hand. Additionally, we have the fellowship of these companions. So in many color robes, she is led with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness, they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. When you are saved, you might leave behind physical mother, father, brother, sister, but you gain a bigger family, a great family. You have brothers and sisters in Christ, and we enjoy, we who are from all different backgrounds, enjoy full fellowship through Jesus Christ with one another. The final two verses, in the place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations, therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. So here we have the benediction where the psalmist uh, wishes for this couple to have children. And these children, these sons would, would take the place of the fathers and themselves become rulers in the land. And he prays that he, he uh, commends this king and says, may your name be remembered hyperbolically forever and ever and ever. When Jesus came to redeem his bride, he came to save men and women from every tribe and tongue and nation. And one day his people will rule and reign with him once again. And the glory will be his forever and ever and ever. There was a story that came out, it was circulated, I heard it on my local news in uh, 2012. Let me just give you that report. There was a man from northern China who divorced and sued his wife earlier this year for being ugly. That's not a joke. Neither is this. That man recently won the lawsuit. That man is Jian Feng, and he said his issues with his wife's looks only began after the couple's daughter was born. Feng was appalled by the child's appearance, calling her incredibly ugly and saying she resembled neither one of her parents. With that being the case, Feng initially accused his wife of cheating. It was at this point that his wife, who has not been named, came forward saying she had spent $100,000 on intense plastic surgeries to drastically change her appearance before she met Feng. She never told Feng about those surgeries. When Feng found out about the procedures, he filed the lawsuit. He said the woman convinced him to marry her under false pretenses. A judge agreed awarding Feng $120,000 and the divorce. 
This story is actually a hoax. It never happened. Various versions of it have circulated since at least 2004. And even though it is a fake story, it illustrates the greatest love story of all time. The most beautiful one of the sons of Adam chose a bride for himself that was ugly within and without. Not only was she sinfully ugly, but she would be unfaithful to him through their marriage. He knew this ahead of time and still loved her with an everlasting, unconditional love. Jesus is the ultimate Hosea who marries the unfaithful Gomer in order to transform her into a faithful bride. Hosea 2 says, And in that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and the war from the land, and I will make you lie down in safety. And this is Jesus speaking to us. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in, in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Let's pray. Father, our hearts are full when we think that the Creator, the King of the universe, would give up his riches, his wealth, his status, become poor, become humble, in order to seek and save us. We are not worthy, Father, but we thank you that worthy is the Lamb. Please help us to live in light of who we are in Christ, that we, en we would enjoy the wonderful treasures you've gifted us in him until he comes for his bride. Praise things for your glory. Amen.